Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm James Coots, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. And welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with New Zealand Australian champion James Coots about maintaining focus, ways of visualising the cards or not visualising them, and why sometimes bridge is black and white. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Jocelyn, I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. Do you remember when we played in London and I was so impressed with the way people leave their bidding cards out on the table until the opening lead is made? And I decided from thenceforth I was going to do the same it's so helpful and it's so polite. And have I done this? No. <laughs> I have completely devolved into just sweeping up my bidding cards and putting them away with nary a thought of leaving them out, even just to give myself a moment to think. And this came back to haunt me recently because I had been passing throughout an auction, sweeped up my cards, put them away. And found myself on lead with no idea what the contract was or what the auction was. Complete brain fade. Complete brain fart. I asked for a review of the bidding and my opponent to my left said, the cards were just right there. He was very irate. And, you know, to be honest, I can't really blame him. I should have been paying more attention. I did have a headache. That's my excuse. Also, you're entitled. I mean, you know, I know they were just there, but you are allowed. Oh, I am allowed to ask for a review of the bidding. But it was, you know, I could tell it was very annoying to these very 
tall opponents. <laughs> Both of them were very, very tall. I wonder if their height gave them a special advantage in terms of taking in what was going on at the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps, or perhaps it took away some of their their patience with some of a less tall people. <laughs> but that also reminds me that, you know, I did notice at that tournament that I was playing that there were so many instances of a tall man partnering with a tall man and a short man partnering with a short man. And I started wondering whether that was a thing. <laughs> was it true of the women as well? I didn't notice that. I was really <laughs> noticing it had to do with the men. Men tended to partner with someone of their, you know, relatively the same height. That's hilarious. I'm going to look out for that now. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was just that particular tournament, but I'd love to know from any listeners if they've ever noticed that men tend to partner with, uh, with men of, the, of a similar height. <laughs> yeah, let us know. And now it's time for Club Quell. Club in the spotlight. Hello, my name is Dahlia. This is a Club Cavell from Canada. I'm a member of the Peterborough Bridge Club. Peterborough City is located a short drive from Toronto. I want to say a big hello to Toronto. They are hosting the North American Bridge Championships in June. I am excited. It will be my first tournament, and Toronto is always spicy. What do I like about my club? The people, of course. We have terrific members. They are passionate and positive. Our teachers have the patience of saints and the knowledge of gods. My favorite members are our masters. They are badasses, always on fire. Whether I am playing with them or against them, they are challenging, demanding, and supportive. What more could a developing player want? Our classes at our club run in the morning and duplicate sessions in the afternoon. Bridge is a great game, but I think it is the people who make it brilliant. Please come join us. So come on down. Email us if you'd like to quell about your club. Club, club in, in the, the Spotlight. spotlight. I'm quelling. Mailbag brimming with letters for us, Jocelyn, and I have selected three to share with you today. What an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> <laughs> Our first letter is from Suzanne in London. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Suzanne. Suzanne writes, yesterday our bridge game was meant to start at 10.30 in the morning, but our director was stuck on a train and so the game started late. Because we started late, some people had to leave before the game was over, so the director kindly covered for them, playing three or four hands at different tables at the same time, which is quite the feat. On my table, he was playing against me and he opened one club, but his partner didn't play that system and it was passed out, giving us a top on that board. So I just wanted to say thank you to the director for filling in, smiley face. Remember, <laughs> don't be late. Or don't leave early if you don't want a bad result. <laughs> Our next letter is from Alan in Texas, and it's titled, Anybody Home? One of the joys of playing bridge is that you never know when something bizarre will happen. I was sitting south as dealer in a recent online game and passed. My left-hand opponent, West, was silent for a minute and then typed in the chat function to the table, West, question mark. 30 seconds later, he typed again, West, 
Question mark, question mark. Not entirely sure what was going on, I called the director. But then I immediately thought, ah, West must be confused about his position at the table. So I typed capitals, you are West, exclamation point. (laughs) Just as the director arrived, West's light went on and he made a bid and the auction proceeded normally. A few seconds later, I received a private chat from the director who wrote, now that was funny. (laughs) Since it's impossible in online bridge to make the all too human bidding and play errors that we see so often at the table in face-to-face bridge, I'll bet the online director really enjoyed being called for this amusing example of a human foible. (laughs) Yes, I bet you're right. I bet he did, Alan. That's hilarious. It's so funny, you know, when you're sitting there and it's like, oh, you know, has someone gone to answer the front door? Have they just taken an extra minute making a cup of coffee? You know, and I sit there for as long as I can before I start typing in the chat, it's your bit or whatever. And then, of course, the number of times the minute I do that, it's like it's summoned them and they cough up a bid. But yeah, I guess this is just one of the one of the things that happens with Online Bridge because people are playing and they're also living their lives. I <laughs> <laughs> love that. <laughs> Our final letter today is about a speedy substitute when there had been an illness at the table. This is from Becky. Playing bridge at a small local club, I was waiting for boards to be passed from the previous table. The fellow sitting south was gazing at his hand, which he held under the table. After several minutes, the West player asked him if he was going to bid. When she got no response, she gently touched his arm to get his attention. He was slumped in his chair. He was quickly helped to the floor and an ambulance was called. To my surprise, A player came in the back door moments later, stating she was going to sub for the ill player. The substitute arrived before the ambulance, and we have a speedy 911 response in my city. Sheesh. (laughs) But I guess the game must go on. Happily, the unconscious player had an easily addressed medical condition and was back at the tables next week. Oh, phew. Cheers. Becky. Wow, that is that is a speedy response. Was was that sub wearing a magic cape or something? <laughs> Just whirled in? Yeah. I have visions of, you know, like a, a Batman light going out. Exactly. <laughs> An ace of spades lighting up the sky. Yes. And in they come to save the day. Well, I'm glad that everybody was all right, but that is pretty funny. <laughs> I know, it's great. I'm glad that the medical situation was easily resolved. Yes. So if you have any fun stories about late starts and unintended consequences, or perhaps funny director's calls on Online Bridge or a substitute story, please send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. You can find all of our contact details on our website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with James Coots. New Zealand Australian champion James Coots was still in high school when he learned to play bridge at his local club in Dunedin, New Zealand. He represented New Zealand in the 2008 Under 26 World Championships and in the mixed teams in the 2016 World Championships. In 2018, he moved to Australia and played for the Australian Open team at the 2022 World Championships. 
and he will be playing on the Australian Open team again at the 2024 World Championships. He won the New Zealand pairs in 2017 and 2018, the New Zealand teams in 2013, 2017, and 2023, the Australian Gold Coast teams in 2019 and 2022, and has won all the other major Australian nationals except the national open teams in Canberra, where his best result was second in 2023. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. Yeah, I was playing a tournament recently. I had what I thought was a very unusual hand, especially since it was hand dealt. I had no spades. I had six hearts to the 10-8. I had six diamonds to the ace-queen-10. And I had one club. So it's, you know, six high card points, but it's a pretty wild 6-6 hand. My partner, who was the dealer, and we were vile against not, he opened one club, just two plus, pretty standard. I bid one diamond showing hearts. You can pretend it's one heart. There was a one spade overcall, and my partner bid five diamonds, which we play as exclusion black hood. Oh, dear. But for hearts. Yeah, so he's got heart support, and he's got avoid and diamonds. So we play these responses, which quite a few experts play. It's called 01122. So the first step says we've got zero key cards outside of diamonds, and then one without the queen, one with the queen, etc. So my issue on this hand was I have a very powerful hand, but I actually have no key cards outside of diamonds. I had to figure out how I was going to show this hand. I feel like if I show zero, my partner is usually just going to pass because it's five hearts as a response. So he's going to pass it. And I don't really want to play in five hearts because, yeah, my hand is just so good. But I don't really want to bid five spades to show one because what if he thinks I've got the one missing key card and he bids seven? That will be terrible if it's, for example, the Ace of Trumps. So yeah, I had to figure out a solution with this this hand. And so the five exclusion steps were going to take me up to six diamonds. So I decided I couldn't bid any of those. So I jumped to six hearts, like skipping all the responses and left my partner in a pretty awkward position of trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, he looked at it for a long time and, and eventually passed, which was fine. He had an unusual hand as well. He had Doubleton King of Spades. Five hearts to the ace, king, jack, uh, avoid in diamonds, and the king, queen, jack, ten to six clubs. So, so there you go. Every- You're fine. <laughs> yeah, everything was fine. But yeah, I thought it was pretty wild. And it was the sort of thing we've got to think on the spot and come up with a solution. But yeah, this one worked out fine. We've often been instructed, I guess, to think about if you have one bid that you can make, you're only given one bid. What is that one bid? And it sounds like you kind of decided to do that in this case. Yeah. And I also hope that my partner wouldn't, you know, randomly bid seven because he knew that I could have responded properly if I wanted. He knows that I know what the bid means. It's come up many times before. So, yeah, it's one of those things where you just, you put in a weird situation and you just hope that your partner's on the same wavelength and, yeah, you can figure it out. In that system, do you have a way of showing voids? No. No. So the problem is, so, because you're yeah. already starting at the five level every time, you just don't have enough space below returning to the trump suit. So it's basically one hand taking control and being quite unilateral and just asking a question. Is this a partner that you have played with for many years? Yeah. Yeah, this is my main bridge partner, Liam. Oh, Liam Milne. Yeah, that's right. So it was good that it was in an established partnership that I felt like enough things have come up that, you know, sometimes we can take liberties and know that partner will actually be able to figure out what's going on. 
What do you think Liam would say is the real strength that you bring to the partnership? I don't know. That's a tough question. I think that one of the things that he appreciates about my game and is just my calmness at the table. I think he's he's mentioned that before. It's just like being focused, being present, and not getting distracted, not getting affected by a bad board, not getting flustered by things that are going on. Yeah, I think he said that. Definitely other people have said that to me, so maybe that's a strength that I have. How do you do that? (laughs) Years of practice, I think. Years of annoying things happening at the table, years of bad results, just kind of maybe getting a little bit desensitized to it, but I think that I know that I play better when I have a clear head and I'm focused. So when I was younger and trying to improve, I put a lot of personal effort into that and, you know, trying to make sure that while I was playing bridge, I was concentrating properly, not getting distracted and not worrying about things that didn't matter. So when you come to the bridge table, you're completely focused on the game in front of you. I try to be. Yeah, is it so habituated now that it's almost like when you walk into the room, it's a little bit like a hypnotic suggestion where just by virtue of being there, everything else goes? Or do you have techniques that you employ to help put you in that frame of mind? I used to make sure that I um, used to enjoy and make sure that I listened to music before each session. Like, so I just kind of myself in my head, you know, put my headphones on, don't, you know, spend too much time talking to people. That was something that worked for me. Yeah, like music is a big part of my life and I'm you know, often listening to music anyway. And I found that I would have songs that I would realize were quite good for like mental focus. So I'd often listen to the same song before each session of a tournament, for example. I feel like I do that a bit less now. And maybe that's just because through that process, I've got more used to showing up at bridge and bridge being the, the thing. I definitely like to be early to sessions. Um, I don't like rushing around trying to find my seat and things like that. I find that that can be quite distracting and then I sit down and I'm just not, on, you know, I'm a bit flustered or something like that. So I try to make sure I'm early and settled. When you were listening to music before to get yourself in the, the right zone, were there particular songs that you could rely on to get you there? It kind of depended on each tournament. Uh, one of my favorite types of music is instrumental music, but it's kind of like heavy with guitars and you know, drums and things like that. And it's songs are often really long. So it's kind of like a, you can listen to an eight minute song and it builds up slowly. I found that that was quite good for focusing rather than songs with lyrics, but maybe classical music could do similar thing for, for people as well, um, I think. But you're not doing that now. Just because I've gotten out of the habit of it, I suppose. Yeah, I find it less necessary. I would still like to do it ideally, but maybe I'm just finding myself busier at tournaments and, you know, often go and get a coffee with my partner or something like that beforehand. And it's just a little less alone time than I used to try and make sure happened. You're probably mobbed by fans beseeching you <laughs> for not. <laughs> your input on a particular hand. Well, thankfully, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not that famous. So I, I play with people who are definitely uh, more you know, well-known and popular in the bridge scene. So like two of my main partners are Liam, who everyone in Australia knows, and also Justin Mill, who you've had on the show as well. So everyone knows those guys. So if someone's got a question, you know, we're sitting at the table, they often ask that person. So that suits me just fine. Given that you like to start a tournament feeling settled and still, how do you feel if you're at the table and people are coming up, whether to say hello to you or to say hello to your partner? 
Like, are you one of those people that gives off a slightly grumpy air because you don't really want to engage or is it all okay and you're warm and friendly? <laughs> you probably have to ask someone else that question. I'm not exactly sure. I, I think probably <laughs> sometimes, sometimes both. Um, like maybe if I'm not feeling totally settled in, you know, I might be a bit grumpy, but um, most of the time it's just, you know, I'm comfortable with myself. So if there's something going on that's mildly distracting, it's kind of like if you're playing someone and they're being annoying, I don't let that affect me too much. Is there anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or nervous at the table? I used to get quite nervous playing really good players. I feel like I've done enough of that now that I'm not I'm no longer phased, but there was definitely maybe, you know, ten years ago when I was kind of establishing myself in the tournament scene and we played against, you know, famous names, I would definitely be nervous. I'm not sure whether that made me play better or worse probably sometimes both because I get excited or maybe it's just motivated by playing against like the top players and maybe it makes me focus more or something like that. But part of that used to be that I, I was definitely nervous. Yeah, I think less so now. That must be partly because you're used to playing with these people, but also... I think so. Are many more of them now personal friends of yours? You would have got to know them better. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I just know all of these people a whole lot better. I've often been on teams with them or, you know, stayed with them in accommodation or something like that. So, yeah, that's that's definitely part of it. What do you think Justin or Liam might say is an area of your game that they would hope you might work on? I haven't had any feedback about what I should be improving on from my partners, which is... um good thing or a bad thing I don't know no but that's you know when they kick you under the table yeah what's happening then <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wear like steel cap boots protected in semi sort of. <laughs> it's also great playing with screens because you never have to look at your partner it's pretty good <laughs> I think that for me my approach to the game has always been kind of based on instincts and intuition rather than you know detailed planning and technical stuff so you know, sometimes I'll be playing a hand and I'll realize that there's a squeeze, but I don't know the name of the squeeze or anything like that. Like I, I recognize a position and I know what's going to happen, but I feel like I, I could improve by reading a lot more and becoming more technical in that regard rather than kind of my approach, which definitely serves me well, which is to piece things together, kind of figure things out gradually. But I think I could train myself to maybe notice some of those sort of things quicker by doing more reading, doing more research. So, yeah, that's that's something that I think I could do at a point where I feel like, you know, I really need to improve in that area. But what's the value of, for example, knowing the name of a squeeze? Yeah, it's. I think it's more just, it's recognition. So maybe if you've read a book about squeezes and you see that the, the position that you've read is coming up. So maybe it might be just recognizable because you've read it, learned a name. I read the Rodwell Files, one of the few bridge books that I read, which is quite dense. And a big theme of that was he really liked coming up with a term for something because it would help him. I feel like it would help him recognize it or recall it. And um, he would have these funny names for these positions. So I don't know whether that will particularly help me or not help me, but it might. So allowing yourself to have a shorthand so that you might just more quickly recognize a particular position or response to a situation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, Regarding hands or positions that textbook stuff, which does come up at the table when you play a lot, be it squeezes or declare a play type stuff where there's a particular position that's known and 
if you read about things, you know, you hear about things like the Morton's Fork and just these things that if you think about it, you train yourself to think about, I feel like recognize the situation more often when it comes up, right? To figure it out each time. What is the biggest mistake you think that people make in defense? I think the most frequent thing is not paying proper attention to partner signals. And this definitely happens to me sometimes. You know, the plays proceeded quite fast for the first few tricks. I know the cards that are gone, but I can't remember whether the partner played the three, then the six, or the six, then the three. So when I'm properly focused, I'll pay attention to all of that stuff. I think it's quite common that people don't take everything in, which is important at the start, because partners there to help you, and they are almost always giving you information that will really help you. Do you have a favorite tournament that you really like to play? Uh, I used to say that the New Zealand Congress was my favorite tournament. It was the first national that I went to. That's where I'm from originally. And it was so exciting as an event. And it was held in the strange, dingy hotel in Hamilton, which is a random place. But it had this great atmosphere where everyone basically stayed right there. There was a great bar. Everyone hung out late at night. Um, that's kind of changed. They moved the venue away from there, which is no longer available. And they moved it to kind of a stadium. And that has lost a lot of the vibe for me. So I think... That's no longer my favorite tournament, although I have many fond memories. But I really like going to the Gold Coast. I think lots of people say that. I always have a great time socially and just the environment's great. I really like, I can, you know, wake up really early in the morning. I can go for a nice walk. It facilitates doing things early in the morning, which I think helps my bridge as well. And yeah, it's just overall a great place to play. Uh, and I realize that this episode, I think, is going to be aired while the Gold Coast is on. So if any of the listeners want to come up and say hi, that'd be great. Wonderful. Thinking about all the places where you've played bridge, was there a particularly memorable place? Well, I went to Phillip Island last week for a holiday and I ended up being taken to the bridge club twice. So I, I didn't expect either of those things. <laughs> Were there any penguins there? No, there weren't any penguins there. Um, not that I saw anyway. It was during the day, so I think it was probably too hot for them. Got it. Phillip Island is famous for fairy penguins. Cute. So cute. I guess another memorable bridge thing was uh, when I was living in New Zealand, there used to be a tournament that happened over two evenings in Alexandra, which is in central Otago, which is a beautiful region. And I would go there with a group of friends every year and we would stay in a camping ground, which cost $2 a night each. And we would play bridge at the Clyde Bridge Club, just around the corner from, say, 7 until 11. And then we would go home and have drinks at the campground. I don't think we played tended to play more bridge at the actual campground, but I associate that as being an unexpected place, which is related to bridge. Yeah. And now for a short break. And remember, if you don't like the ads, you can sign up for ad-free episodes on our website. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we're back. Do you remember the first time you were hired as a bridge pro? Yes. It was a long time ago and I wasn't actually paid but I was living in New Zealand, I was a university student, and um, a guy offered to pay for me and two other young players to come over to the Gold Coast. And I'd never been to that tournament, uh, and I've really fond memories of that. So I didn't actually come away making any money out of it, but we got all our expenses covered and, and had a great time. And I guess it was my first experience at one of my favorite tournaments. So yeah, it was a long time ago now, but I remember that fondly. Playing with clients... Is such a minefield because, you know, no one wants to bite the hand that feeds them. We've been in a situation a number of times more recently where we've witnessed clients not treating their pros as well as they might. But have you had the opposite experience where it's just been really great to play with a client for whatever reason? I'm not a full-time bridge pro and I'm lucky enough that yeah, I don't need to rely on it too much for income and I play with clients occasionally, but primarily recently at least I've been playing with my pro part on teams. So I don't have to worry too much about that sort of thing. There are definitely great times you can have and I feel like most of that comes down to creating a good experience and environment. It's often not so much about the bridge results, it's more about having fun and, you know, getting along well. So I know you mentioned about clients sometimes not treating their pros very well, but I'd say I've seen more of the other way around, where there are pros who are rude to their clients and obviously no one's having a good time. And I just don't really understand why that continues to happen or why this person still hires this person to be rude to them all the time. I mean, I can't remember like a specific example that really comes to mind, but I've had plenty of times where I've been playing with a client and it's been fun and enjoyable and we've been relaxed and I feel like that also just leads to better results most of the time. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I would imagine that's a much more conducive learning environment because people continue to stay open-minded and receptive to what you might have to say. Everyone's different, I think. Every person who might want to hire a bridge pro will want something different out of it. There are obviously people who are primarily focused on results and that's completely fine and there are probably ideal pros to hire for that but there are people who are more interested in learning or having a fun time or you know having a social trip away and there's probably a completely different group of pros who are best for them so yeah I think 
if someone's considering hiring a pro, I think they should really be thinking about what exactly they want out of it and then maybe asking around about who might be best to provide that sort of thing rather than just saying, you know, this is the the top pro in my area because they might not actually be that suitable for you. That's great, great advice. What's the most annoying thing that happens regularly at Bridge? Where do we begin? <laughs> yeah, well, you can start a long list. Uh, I think thing that happens a lot at Bridge and I find the most annoying is just when I go to someone's table or they come to my table and they're just bickering about a previous hand. It's not conducive to anyone at the table having fun or good results, really. And it's something that happens surprisingly often. I feel like people should just be able to control themselves a little bit better in that regard, you know, with the aim of playing better on the next hand. Yeah, just making a more enjoyable environment for everyone. How do you feel if your opponents are sniping at each other after they played with you and they're going on to the next table? Yeah. I mean, I don't like it because it just means people they play against next are going to have a bad time and they're going to continue to have a bad time. So that's, I, th- that has definitely been the case when um, I played an uh, online bridge, particularly during the COVID era, and we played a lot on real bridge. So, you know, we get to the end of a round and then a couple of times it happened, me and my partner turned our cameras off and just, you know, we had some spare time, so we went away. But then we heard opponents were then just like complaining about us or it's, <laughs> something oh. like the um yeah i'm glad i don't have to really do so much of that anymore yes I, I imagine that when you're playing against other champions that generally speaking they keep their feelings to themselves but is that not the case you'd like to think so and probably it's true that in general they're better but for better or worse i just pick up on a lot of emotion stuff happens at the table sometimes it's a blessing and sometimes it's a curse uh, and I can just always kind of tell if some by their, you know, someone's mannerisms or body language or something like that. And bridge is such a partnership game that really you can pick up on that from your partner, probably in a more detailed way than you can pick up from a random person. I remember not that long ago, I was playing against a foreign pair, and they just started speaking very fast to each other <laughs> in a language that I didn't understand, and it was quite clear that what was going on there was they were having an argument about, you know, specifically what had happened on that hand. So, yeah, it, it does happen. <laughs> yeah, sure. Is there an issue in Bridge, something that is important to you or something that you think might contribute to the Bridge community that we aren't talking about? I don't know if it's one of the main hot-button issues, but something that occurs to me quite regularly is I feel like we should be able to present Bridge as a better spectator experience. I love watching Bridge, and I spend a lot of time on BBO when there was regular graph watching on there and I felt like I enjoyed it and I was always learning something but I feel like that way of displaying it is not completely engaging and I feel like maybe it could as a way where if we could broadcast and promote well that way we might be able to get people into it or at least we might be able to get people to come back to it which is a lot of people who have learned bridge in the past and I know that when I've been overseas playing tournaments been graph some friends or old partners from home message me and say oh i've been watching your view graph and these are people who don't really play bridge actively anymore but i feel like if there was something that could be done to improve that and make even more people want to do that whether it's promotion or different ways of commentating or displaying or yeah i feel like there's 
that's something that Bridge could improve on. Out of curiosity, which city do you live in? Sydney. Sydney, Australia, yeah. And you've been there now for? Uh, A bit less than a year. I'm from New Zealand originally, and I moved here to Australia in 2018, and I lived in Melbourne for five years. When you think about the bridge scene in New Zealand and the bridge scene in Australia, how would you describe the similarities and differences? Yeah, I think there are, I mean, there's the similarities in terms of the culture and all that is that's all very much the same, but there's definitely differences in terms of what people play. So in Australia, we have several nationals a year, which are like really motivate people. And I love that. I love going to the nationals. Whereas in New Zealand, there was only ever one congress, one main congress. So people went to that, but there was much more of a focus in terms of tournament players on the local stuff. So in New Zealand, I found that there were many local tournaments that were really worth playing and lots of the experts would play because that was just kind of what was available. And also, um, I come from a relatively small town, but we had a thriving bridge club and every week there would be, on a Thursday night, I think there would be at least 30 tables there. Whereas moving to Melbourne in a big city... I feel like most of the top players were focused on the nationals and not at all on the local congresses and the club play. It's probably better in lots of ways. If you're a player like me who likes to go to the local club, if I was in New Zealand, I'd be experiencing tougher competition and maybe my game would be (laughs) improving because of it, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I definitely enjoy going to the bridge club as well. And that was a huge part of the first 15 years of my career as a bridge player. And it's what really got me hooked on it, you know, when I first learned when I was 18, was going along and having that experience, that regular social experience with a group of people. And the competition was good enough that it was motivating as well when it got to the stage where I could win those sessions. What led you to take up Bridge? Uh, It was a bit of a strange situation. I just got recommended it by a friend. The local Bridge Club in my hometown went around to high schools and they got a lot of people this one particular year and a good friend of mine from high school went to the the lunchtime lessons at at school I didn't do that (laughs) funnily enough I was too busy playing cricket and doing other things but um he said I think you'd really like this game I like it and you should go along to the club and they do lessons so the following year first year at uni I went along to the club yeah I was lucky enough that there were heaps of other young people there because they'd been recruited through these high schools so there were people who were kind of a couple of years younger than me, and that really helped get me enthused and, and stuck in the game because, yeah, I formed partnerships with these people. And, yeah, it was a lot easier than if I'd gone along by myself, which I did, and, you know, there weren't that many people I could relate to. That lake with the schools seems really significant, and it's yeah that importance cannot be overstated. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. Yeah, I think people have tried to do it at various points and it's been hard, like they just haven't got people. But for some reason this year, everything fell into place and they got a great group of people, Yeah, many of whom I still connect with. I guess you can't just randomly show up. You've got to have lessons in place for people to come along to and give people somewhere to land if they're interested. I think it helped that a couple of the schools that were bridge playing teachers, so they didn't really run the the thing so someone from the club would come along and show them how to play like mini bridge and what tricks are and things like that but having a teacher at a school who's motivated because they love a game I think that definitely helps because they will want to promote it to their students and things like that rather than you know you just see a flyer on a notice board and like firstly you have to notice it and secondly you have to come to your own conclusion that's something you want to do 
But are you saying that they were also offering lessons actually at the school or you had to go to the club? What happened at school, I believe, I I wasn't there, but I think what happened was it was relatively informal in terms of they taught mini bridge, they taught the basics of bidding. But if you wanted to take up bridge at the club, you would then go along to the lessons. So my friend, he went along to the lessons at the club in the second half of the year during high school basically. Once he'd gotten that taste of it um, and through the more, more process w- with an actual tutor, rather than, because you know, lunchtime, 45 minutes, you can't really stuck into it that much. Do any of the people that you met when you started playing bridge at university still play? Not as seriously as I play. And kind of people have had different trajectories. Uh, I have a couple of friends who have had families like young kids so they take time off from the game but I know that in my home club in Dunedin my brother has now started playing club teams with two of my ex-partners who are now you know in their mid-30s and they've got kids who are at an age where they can go out in the evening again so that's that's great these people even if they don't play tournaments all the time they still love the game and will come back to it. Have you ever taught anyone to play from scratch? No, well, actually, that's not true. I tried once. Uh, my partner, who's also a bridge player, we tried to do a weekly dinner and brief lessons with her sister and her partner. We had fun doing that for a while, but I found it really hard to think of, you know, how to best explain this concept. So all we did was said something very basic, and then we just dealt and played some hands. And then if something came up, some you know, didn't know what to do, then we'll just talk about it. So it was kind of an informal way of doing it. But yeah, I've never been a bridge teacher, really. Uh, I've made some presentations for like up-and-coming players. But yeah, I've never thought about how to deliver bridge teaching in the, the best possible way, which is extremely hard thing to do, I'm sure. What's the biggest schlamozzle or muck-up that you've ever made at the table? Oh, it's probably countless. There's one that's stuck in my mind at the moment because it cost a tournament. But I was playing a hand, and I really believe in the power of the closed hand. So everyone can see the dummy, but if the auction hasn't been too revealing, it can be quite difficult to defeat. So I had the choice of some plays where I could kind of work on establishing my long suit and no trumps, like kind of a normal thing to do, but then they would kind of know more about my hand. So I decided I'll try and get an extra trick from another suit now before they know they won't know what's playing on or anything like that. And the concept was kind of okay, but I just executed very poorly. The issue was I had ace doubleton in the dummy, and I had queen jack fourth in my hand. So I needed two tricks from the suit. I didn't want to have to set up my long suit and then rely on a finesse. So I decided I was on the dummy at trick one. I want to play hearts towards my queen jack. And this would have worked fine, apart from the fact that instead I stupidly cashed the ace of hearts first. So then when I led the ace of hearts, then a heart to the jack and king, the person on my left had king, ten, nine, blah, blah, blah of hearts. And so they they should be continuing hearts rather than in the suit that they led or another suit. And I didn't have time to set up my long suit and I went down an absolute cold contract. So I feel like these things happen to me from time to time where I get an idea, something a bit creative or different to do. But this was at an important time during an event, anyone in my team could done something different basically during this last set but yeah it, it, it cost us um cost us qualifying for the knockouts 
I like the way you've analyzed it, though, that you were experimenting or you were trying to go for something a little bit off the beaten track, a little unusual. Yeah, that's definitely something that I do maybe too much. I really like about Bridge that people can be good at it in different ways. So there are people who are great analysts and there are people who are great at table feel. But I think for me, it's good as like a creative outlet. Like I like thinking about a hand and then thinking of a way to do something about it. So yeah, sometimes someone was to look at the way I played hands compared to a bunch of other people that might seem to do some things that look maybe strange on the surface. But part of what motivates me in Bridges is that, you know, ability to think about something in an interesting way. What is something that people might be surprised to learn about you? Uh, there are two things that come to mind, I guess, that have some relation to bridge. The first is I recently learned that I have this thing called aphantasia, which is basically the inability to construct visual imagery in your mind. So, you know, people talk about the mind's eye or something like that, and they talk about visualizing things. You know, the classic things are like count sheep to go to sleep or something like that. So that stuff had never really made any sense to me, but I didn't realize that other people actually could do that and have, have the ability to kind of picture things in their brain. And I kind of learned about it by chance, and I'm not really sure like exactly how it affects me, I guess, in my, in my bridge life. But I, I mean, I do wonder whether when I'm playing a hand or, or thinking about it, you know, someone can actually form a picture of it and whether that makes it harder or easier or I guess just different uh, <laughs> Yeah. I remember when we were talking to Steve Weinstein and he was talking about the cards dancing before him in his mind. Right. And it was, yeah, it just evoked this somewhat literal imaging of the cards that he could see. And to me, that was just magic because I have no idea what that's like. And I take it that you don't know what that's like either. Not at all. No. I think there's a it's a related thing or in the same sort of spectrum called like hyperphantasia where people have like extremely active visual imagination that they can see. So maybe Steve might have that or um at least be further along than than typical, I guess. It's not something I've really um talked to many people about, so I'm not really sure how perceptions are across the bridge community. How did you discover that you had this condition? <laughs> Well, I was reading a journalist who I subscribed to on Substack, um, just wrote an article about it because he, he doesn't have it, but he recently learned about it. And then I read this and I was like, yeah, okay. I, I thought this was like what most people's life was, not something quite different. So I, it was completely by chance. And then, yeah, I did a fair bit of reading about it. And the estimates are kind of like not 100% clear, but it's like, usually says between 2 and 4% of the population. And I think it is a spectrum thing. Some people have, like, complete inability. But, like, for example, I do dream, and I I don't remember many of them, but I'm aware that I have visual images when I'm dreaming. So I think some people have even zero of that. This is good news for a lot of bridge players because we're often told that we're meant to be able to visualise the cards, so it's good to know that not all the top-top players actually can do it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess talking about visualizing cards and things, you know, it made literal sense to people, but didn't make any sense to me. Um, but I thought it was just kind of more of a figure of speech or something. I'm not sure. Um, the other thing that people might not know about me is that I'm quite colorblind. And that definitely affects my bridge 
life, not not in terms of playing the cards because you know they have symbols on them and plus the red and black usually distinguishable. But um, I still remember the first time this happened to me at a tournament where uh, I looked down at the vulnerability that was recorded on a sticker on the board and um, it was all just the same colour and there was no underline. So I just made a bid, which I would have only done if we were not vulnerable. And then the score said, you know, it was something else. And I was like, what? what? How is that possible? So it turns out that at least in Australia, we use these boards which usually have a sticker on them and it's like a plastic case and the stickers get put on them and it will say it will have the number of the board and it will have one person as a dealer and it will say north west and south for example and there are kind of like a few different color formats for these um sometimes it's very light green and black and sometimes it's like a bright red with an underline for vulnerable and then black for not vulnerable and those are all fine, but there's one in particular which doesn't... It's like a dark red and a dark green. So to my eyes, those are just the same. And there's no underline on it either. So um, sometimes I come up against those boards still now. I don't know why people order those stickers instead of the ones that are easier to see, but I think, you know, people just don't think about it so much. I've mentioned it to a few bridge clubs, so <laughs> it hasn't totally changed their behavior. Maybe I see less of them than I used to. But yeah, that is definitely something that can be annoying because I have to then, if I see that we're about to play one of these board sets, I have to get myself a personal scorecard and like actively check each board for the vulnerability. Yeah, so you just have that extra level of caution that you need to take when you're looking at your hand. Yeah. Have you met anyone else at the table who is also colorblind and has come up against the same issue? No, I haven't ever had a conversation at Bridge about that. My my younger brother who place bridge has the same thing as me one of my brothers so i've talked about it with him and i've mentioned it to people you know if i say i'm sorry i've got to go up and get a personal scorecard from the that desk over there now and they're like what why it's the middle of the round it's like well i can't see the vulnerability on this particular board so um yeah, yeah it's just gonna have to happen so it works its way into conversation sometimes i bet you're not alone no well colorblindness is reasonably common particularly in males to varying degrees and I think there's estimates that it's up somewhere more like 10% have some sort of colour vision deficiency. I think mine's moderate. It can be barely noticeable or it can be really bad. Um, it doesn't affect me too much in my day-to-day life but yeah sometimes in specific scenarios it does and yeah bridge vulnerability is one of them. I've heard people talk about senses and, and the idea that if one sense is compromised in some way that the other senses heightened yes and i'm now i'm wondering if with you with your color blindness and your aphantasia <laughs> yeah. this is up to your bridge acuity in other ways <laughs> i don't know yeah maybe it has in some ways that i'm yet to discover um, i'm glad to be able to talk about this with you on the show because it's something that i do feel like bridge clubs and bridge organizations can easily resolve like this is just in this instance, there's several different colours of stickers and they can just not use the ones that are really hard for colourblind people to see. And I hope that maybe some people who are administrators or club managers or something like that, it's just something that maybe might pop into their mind when they're purchasing their next set of boards. Absolutely. And if it's an easy fix, why not, hey? Yeah, definitely. James, do you have a favourite bridge convention? I don't think I do. I'm not that opinionated about conventions for the most part. Um, I have some things that I like to play, but I don't feel like any of them are something that I would insist on. I like playing Flannery. I think that's a convention 
and people say it never comes up, but I reckon it comes up quite a bit. I like uh, using transfers and some complicated situations. That's a thing that Liam and I are working on adding to our system at the moment, like better competitive bidding, and that's been good so far. Uh, I feel like in a lot of places you can transfer to a suit rather than bid it. have more options about whether it's with a weak hand or a strong hand and things like that. So I think that's good. I think that something that I like quite a lot is non-series 3-0 trump. Mm. That's really good. I, I find it so important two over one context just being able to say actually i've got a hand because you know i'm sure we've all had those situations where we kind of agree a suit and then we start q bidding and then no one knows when to stop q because their partner might have a good hand but that's exactly what they're thinking on the other side of the table so yeah i think it's really got some people play serious three no i don't think it matters really as long as you have one way right is there a convention though that you really do not like there's a convention that used to grate me a lot because people would play it all the time and it just seemed quite inferior. And that was people using minor wood all the time in these minor auctions. Or some people played it as like four diamonds plus one, or some people played it as four diamonds. And they could never bid four diamonds naturally because they had this agreement that it would always be minor wood. And it was just, it seemed infrequent. And yeah, I feel like maybe that was more of a thing in New Zealand, actually. I think lots of people were really into that convention maybe it's less so in australia because i haven't noticed it so much but i mean the premise of it is that have more space to ask for key cards but for me that just means you're opening key card if you're worried about space that much key card is only just making sure you have two pieces for a slam you don't need to bid at low levels but if you want to figure out if you have a grand oh that's fine we've got all the area from four no trumps and above to kind of sort that out. I feel like the steps between four diamonds and four spades won't help too much with that. It would have helped last night if I had counted properly and given my partner the accurate response to her four diamond ask. Mm. Yep, yep. That, that's another thing that I guess I didn't like about it is that the um, responses aren't symmetric. So you have to think about it each time. You've got to count them out in your hand, you know. Exactly. If you play four no trumps as key card, then five hearts is two with two without the queen. You don't have to worry about it, so... And I gave her four no Trump response, saying two without the queen, I had the queen. Yeah. I think a lot of bridge should be boiled down to, in terms of conventions at least, making sure that something is easy to remember and does not cause a stuff up rather than complicating things or something that will take a lot of energy to remember or to figure out at the time. I find that it can be stressful as well, like, and it really distracts you from some of the important stuff that you then have to do, like play a slam as the clearer so being frazzled about the auction maybe not thinking so clearly afterwards what is the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given or that you can share with our listeners i think a tip that has kind of stuck with me from a really long time ago like my first kind of bridge mentor i was young and not that good but he just said to me trust yourself and trust your intuition and that's something that I still do and I feel like I'm a lot better off for it. So not overthinking or second guessing yourself so much because the idea that you have at the start, it's quite frequent that that's, you know, you're on the right track. So I think that tip, it it took the stress out of bridge for me as well because I was just like, okay, sure, I want to try and figure out how to best do this. But if I start with trusting my instincts and then decide whether it's right, at least I've got some way to narrow it down. 
James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, lovely to talk to you as well. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, James Coots. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Olivia Cooper. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. Join the Sorry Partner Posse, purchase books through our site, explore the merch store. These links and a link to Club Kfell are in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as James says, trust yourself and trust your intuition. (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.